0: I am your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people just like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today's guest is really doing amazing things. She has produced a documentary. She has a book that's coming out, but almost even more important than that, she has completely transformed her life and her health, and you're going to hear about this today. Please welcome Dr. Sarai Stansek. Thank you so much for talking to us today because you have one of the most incredible stories of healing that I've heard.
1: Thank you so much, AJ, it is a great honor to be with you. I know this was a little bit challenging for us to get our our, uh, uh, schedules aligned, but we made it and here we are, you look great.
0: I see your shoulder is healing. (laughs) <laughs> thank you. Me. Thank you so much. Yes. And, and it's so funny because the doctor today was a lifestyle doctor and he said, you know, the three most inflammatory foods are, and then he, he and like, who does that other than lifestyle medicine doctors like yes. you, but you weren't always a lifestyle medicine doctor, were I you? Was
1: not, no. You know, I started my career as an internist and actually an, an infectious disease specialist. Um, Largely because I went to medical school in the late 80s, early 90s in Newark, New Jersey. And if you recall, that period was coincident with the height of the HIV epidemic. So within that experience, I witnessed so much pain and suffering. I really wanted to be part of that solution. So I pursued a a subspecialty in infectious diseases after I finished my internal medicine residency. And And I worked in that capacity for almost 15 years. But then... Uh, life and my path took me to this um, really passion for an advocacy for lifestyle medicine. I think it's the future. I think it's what our country or what our globe needs to heal. And I'm, I'm deeply passionate about bringing change to the healthcare setting. It's so needed.
0: Yeah. And your film talks a lot about that. And we're going to get into the film, but first your personal story. Mm -hmm. I'm always fascinated by what it's like when a doctor becomes a patient. What was it like for you being so young to be diagnosed with MS?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it came so suddenly, um, AJ. I was a a third year medical resident and in the midst of a very busy call, I I went to take a nap for a a few minutes. and, And when I was paged again to address another patient care matter, I found myself. I couldn't feel my legs. It happened that abruptly, that acutely. I mean, I, I literally walked into the hospital that morning, feeling just fine, uh, vibrant, and 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 you know, healthy young woman. And and just like that, everything changed. I was brought to the emergency room, and a MRI of my brain and spinal cord confirmed a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And my life changed just like that. And it felt as if. The end was the here and uh, like the, fo- fo- the floor had fallen out from under me, it was
0: a, it was really traumatic. What, what did your doctor tell you? And what did he say you could expect for your future at that time?
1: Yeah. So when when he came to see me in, in the hospital room, he said to me, you know, the disease burden is really quite high. There's a lot of damage in your brain and spinal cord. And um, he said to me, I, I think you have to be realistic and plan for the worst. He said, there's a good chance that within 10 to 20 years, you will require a real, a wheelchair. And um, very tough words to hear when you're 28 years old and when you expect like your life is just beginning. I had just dedicated my entire, you know, early to, to, to studying, right? I was in college and medical school and residency and felt, you know, I was working hard for so many years. And now it, at this point, I was expecting all of that hard work to to bear fruit. And and now uh, it was it was all coming to an end. And so he told me though, remarkably, that at the time in 1995, he said to me, you're actually lucky to have been diagnosed in this in this period because we just had the first drug approved by the FDA for multiple sclerosis. And it was a medication called beta-serone. And he told me it was very, very important that I start this medicine right away to slow the progression of the disease so that I could, you know, reduce uh, or re- improve my likelihood that I could remain able bodied longer. So he he did tell me that the medicine although it was quite effective that it was it was not going to be easy. He told me it was a drug that I would have to inject every day and I when I asked him for how long he said for the rest of your life. He said it was a medication that had a significant side effect profile that included fever, chills, muscle aches and pains, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, anorexia, insomnia, injection site reactions, depression, and suicidal thoughts to name just a few. But he said to me, don't worry because I know exactly what to do to reduce the likelihood that you'll ever experience those side effects. So I was eager to hear what he had to say. He said you're going to do two things you're going to pre-medicate with tylenol or ibuprofen before you inject the drug and then secondly and most importantly you inject the drug right before you go to bed this way you'll sleep through all those side effects and aj i, I never slept through the side effects i would inject the drug at 10 o'clock and at two o'clock in the morning i would awaken with violent shaking chills fever etc it was really intolerable
0: oh my god it sounds like the cure is almost as bad as the disease it
1: sure was it sure was and you, you know, after doing this for a period of time, I didn't think I could do it much longer. Uh, I just had no quality of life. So I called him, met with him, and I told him I was calling it quits. And he, he said to me, that's that's just not an option. And he reminded me of the wheelchair in case I had forgotten. And he said, look, I, I, I know it's hard, but I also know what we need to do now. What we'll do is we'll treat the side effects of the drug with other drugs. So when I couldn't sleep, I was given Ambien, When I couldn't wake up in the morning, I was given an amphetamine-like drug called ProVigil. And when I became depressed, I was given Prozac. So for, and that happened over years, for every symptom there was yet another drug. And by the time I was in my early thirties, I was taking about a dozen medications. I mean, I had a pill box, AJ. And despite all of these medicines, my my disease progressed and and my quality of life suffered immensely. um, eight years into the diagnosis, I was dependent on a cane or a set of crutches. And, and I was really losing hope. Very sad young woman, depressed, uh, is the way I would best define you know, where I was in 2003.
0: And you know, when you think about it, your story has a happy ending, but think about all the people out there with your same diagnosis at varying ages that have gone down that path and that are, are feeling like you're feeling and maybe even worse because they don't know what you know. What you know, how the heck did you even think about nutrition in your case to to change your diet to maybe change the outcome of your disease
1: yeah it came um what i call my aha moment you know that moment of enlightenment uh it came in the oddest ways i was at this point uh chief of infectious diseases practicing in new york and um my secretary walked in one day and dropped off a stack of mail on my desk and It caught my attention. I looked over and on top of the stack, I saw a journal and on the cover of the journal, I saw the words multiple sclerosis and of all things, blueberries. And I thought to myself, what do blueberries have to do with multiple sclerosis? I dropped everything. I picked up the journal, turned to the article. And what I found was frankly, an unscientific, poorly constructed study that essentially took a a small handful of patients and fed them a, a diet rich in blueberries. And the patients reported that they felt better. Now, here I was, a physician, a scientist, a researcher, that wasn't a very objective clinical endpoint. I couldn't believe anyone had uh, published such a study. But, you know, there was something about this silly little blueberry study that I couldn't get out of my head, and it wasn't that I thought eating blueberries was going to solve my problems. For the first time in my adult life as a practicing dual board-certified physician, I considered the following question, could there be a connection between diet and disease? I mean, that had never dawned on me before. I mean, 10 years of medical education and training, and that was never discussed. So I turned to the literature because I was very curious. Um, And I I typed in words in, in PubMed, the search engine, like multiple sclerosis and diet and chronic disease and diet. And what I got back was nothing short of remarkable. And one of the first articles that I read, AJ, that truly resonated with me, Was an article published in New England Journal of Medicine in 1952 believe it or not and in that article uh, a physician named Roy Swank wrote about the incidence of MS in Norway and he noted that by the way Norway has one of the highest rates of MS in the world but he noted when he looked at the specifics of what was happening in Norway that they the the highest concentrations were occurring in the inner farming dairy community where they were consuming large amounts of saturated fat And so he hypothesized back in 1952 that saturated fat was playing a role in the pathogenesis and increased risk of multiple sclerosis. Now, he didn't just leave it at hypothesis. He actually started treating MS patients with a low-fat plant-based diet in the 1950s and in fact followed a cohort of 140 patients over 34 years and ultimately published his findings in the Journal of the Lancet in 1990. And do you know what he found after following 140 plus patients over 34 years? His okay. patients had significantly less morbidity and mortality and 95% of them remained physically active. 95% of them remained physically act- active after 34 years of living with MS. That was amazing to me because every time I went to my doctor, he reminded me of that wheelchair. So this truly resonated with me. And it wasn't just Swank, there were several art- other articles in the literature that clearly uh, pointed to the same concern with, with diet playing a role in MS. So, At this point, I was empowered. I was hopeful. I was excited. I made copies of all of the articles that I had seemingly uncovered and off I went to meet with my doctor to share with him what I had learned. And, you know, he was respectful and listened to everything I had to say, but at the end of it all, he looked at me and he said, changing your diet is not going to in any way, meaning, you know, result in any meaningful change. What you need to do. Is remain compliant with the medications as prescribed. And if you want to blame anything for having MS, you can blame your genes because that's why you have MS. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, you can do about that. So I left that visit feeling quite deflated. Whatever, whatever, you know, whatever hope I had conjured up um, had been swiftly washed away. But not for long, AJ, because I started to think more about my doctor's parting words, that it was my genes. And I started to think about my experience as an undergraduate when I took a genetics course. And I remember one afternoon, the professor lecturing on monozygotic twins. And monozygotic twins are really very interesting from a geneticist's perspective, because you have two separate individuals that have the same genetic material, and we can learn a lot from that example. So I wondered the following question, if twin A has MS, what is the likelihood that twin B would have MS? If my doctor was right, it would be close to 100%, right? Because they have the same genes. And when I looked into the evidence, it wasn't 100%. It wasn't even 50%. It was closer to 14 to 30% some of that hope I had lost began to seep back in because what did this tell me? It told me that it wasn't just my genes, that there were indeed other variables. So again, you know, I kept searching for answers and that's when I came across finally the science of epigenetics. Epigenetics first described in the 1950s but really flourished in the 1980s and epigenetics essentially tells us that gene expression is dependent on outside variables. So that is just because you have, for example, a gene or genetic predisposition to diabetes doesn't necessarily mean that you will get diabetes, right? That's the difference between genotype and phenotype. And so there are outside external variables that either turn genes on or off. And what I learned was that those variables were things like diet, exercise, stress, sleep, tobacco, alcohol, lifestyle medicine essentially, right? So I was uh, so empowered reading all of this material. I came to a moment in time where I realized I was just not going to get the support that I seeked to receive from my physician. And I was going to have to go about this on my own. So in 2003, I made the unconventional decision to responsibly taper off of every one of those medicines. And instead I would optimize every aspect of my lifestyle. So the first thing I did was I changed my diet and I adopted a whole food plant-based diet. Now, why did I do that? Why not, I don't know, a paleo diet or uh, whatever was trending at the time, right? A Keto diet. I adopted a whole foods plant-based diet because the overwhelming body of evidence in the literature pointed to a diet rich in fruits vegetables whole grains legumes nuts and seeds as being the optimal diet not for ms not for diabetes not for heart disease but for all of us for optimal health i began to exercise believe it or not back in the 1990s it was falsely believed that Exercise exacerbated or worsened multiple sclerosis. So I was counseled not to exercise. So for eight years, I had done little to nothing. And so my husband bought me a stationary bike and would have to assist me to get onto it. And I could do a minute or two and then exhausted and in pain, he would carry me off and it would take me 15 to 20 minutes to recover. In multiple sclerosis, when your body temperature goes up you become more symptomatic. It's called Uthoff's phenomenon. So, and it's very painful. But the next day I got back on and the day after that and the day after that. And over time, over the weeks and months that followed, I built strength and endurance, stress. I managed, I I, put, I brought my team together at the VA and I told them I wasn't going to do that extra research project or that extra clinic time. I was gonna leave at a reasonable time every day. For the first time in my life, AJ, I was putting myself first. I learned how to sleep. I was addicted to Ambien and Ativan, all the medications that I had been given to manage my sleep cycles. And I learned and understood sleep physiology. I studied it. I created an effective sleep environment in my home, and I learned how to sleep. And that was one of the most powerful um, changes that, that in my life because sleeping properly is such an important part of overall well-being. And It didn't happen in a week and it didn't happen in a month, but I started to feel better. And at first it was something as subtle as I could stay up past jeopardy or I'd get to work on a particular, I remember the day, exact day, I got to work and I felt confident enough to leave my cane in the car that day. And then, folks always ask me how long before you knew that you had made the right decision? And it's hard to say, but there is one day that I remember well, and I, I always talk about it and, it's, and I, I share it in the film. It was July 2nd, 2005. This was two years into my lifestyle change. And the reason I have, I remember that day and I have a photograph of it is because I attended a wedding, a friend of mine's wedding. And on that day, I did two things that most people will consider trivial or silly. But to me, it was a big deal because it was something that I didn't think I would ever be able to do. And I hadn't done in years. I wore heels and I danced with my husband. So that was 2005. And, and by the way, I, I, I want to be clear on this. It wasn't perfect. There were challenges along the way. In fact, a year into my lifestyle change, I actually had a setback, but I continued to forge forward because I knew there were good things happening, uh, and that, of course, led to uh, around that time, my brother who lives in Los Angeles had come to visit me and suggested uh, that I run a marathon. He had recently run the Los Angeles Marathon, and 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 during that conversation, he looked at me and he said, "I I think you should you should do this," and. And AJ, when he when he suggested it, I got so mad at him. I shot him a look and I said, "Are you kidding me? I I can't run a marathon. I have multiple sclerosis." And um, grateful to him for for um, presenting that to me because I realized then that I was living my life first and foremost as this woman with multiple sclerosis, and with that designation came so many limitations things i could do and things i couldn't and i realized in that moment that i needed to uh um let that go and you know he planted that seed and and i went out and tried to do a little bit of running it didn't go well at first uh, i i had poor balance and i would fall scrape my knees but i would heal up and try again and w- uh, there's a nature preserve right down the street from where, from where I live, and I, I could see it from where I'm sitting. Uh, there's a small body of water in the center of it, and a path that goes around its edge. If you make it the entire way around, it's about a mile. It's not it's not it's not big, but the first day, the first time I made it the entire way around without stopping, um, I felt invincible. I called my husband and I said, "Honey, I I don't know how or when, but someday I'm going to run that marathon," and uh, you know it, it's a great pleasure to say that uh, I did run that marathon uh, in, on May 2nd, 2010 at the New Jersey Marathon. And crossing that finish line was a, an extraordinary moment for me, not, not because I ran a marathon, but because all these changes that I had implemented in my life had certainly um, borne fruit. And uh, today, I am going to celebrate on October 11th, 25 years since my diagnosis. And I am medication-free and disability-free and empowered more than ever before to share this this very simple but very powerful healing message with whomever is willing to hear it so i thank you for the opportunity to share it
0: absolutely you know as i listen to your story i think you know you 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 have i don't want to say a strong personality but you're not like a little wallflower and i say that because regular people if they had were in your situation where the doctor said oh and nutri- you know nutrition forget about it I, they might not feel as empowered as you were to make these changes despite what your doctor said. You know what I mean?
1: Right, yeah, for sure. That was definitely challenging. And I can tell you when I made the decision, it was not popular, including my my family. My husband, who's also a physician, was very concerned, but I showed him the evidence. We reviewed the literature together. And then at the end of the day was my decision to make and he supported me wholeheartedly. Uh, but I knew there was risk uh, in in making the decision. Bottom line was that where I was in 2003 on those medications, uh, living the life that I was living, uh, the quality of life was was poor, and I needed to do something. I needed to take this risk, uh, and uh, I'm I'm very grateful that it's a happy ending.
0: Was your family supportive of your changes along the way? Uh,
1: yes. In well. Like, like I said, my for example, my mother was very, very concerned uh, that uh, I was putting myself at risk. But she, when she asked questions, I offered her the information and helped her to understand that I was making, this was a very carefully well thought out plan. It wasn't something that I just decided overnight. I, I considered all the options, including the disease modifying therapy that I was on. Uh, and ultimately, uh, I felt that this was the best decision for me. Now it may not be for everyone. And, and again, I am not saying, uh, allowing me to be clear that medication is the devil. Medication has a role and I, and I never tell MS patients not to take medication. And, and remember also the world in which we live in today is much different than the one in which I lived in when I was first diagnosed, where we had one drug approved by the FDA. We now have I think more than a dozen medications. So there's variety and there are options available. And the other thing is that multiple sclerosis is a disease that is uh, different in everyone, right? Uh, it's It has a different course in, in every patient. So I think it's, it's very important. I'm certainly not saying MS patients should abandon uh, their conventional therapeutic approach. What I'm saying is that if you just take a disease-modifying therapy and you don't address these all-important lifestyle behaviors, then you're, you're compromising your ability to best, to live to your greatest potential. Because guess what, just because you have MS doesn't mean that you're protected from developing heart disease or diabetes or breast cancer or Alzheimer's disease. The wonderful thing about lifestyle medicine, the prescription is that it's the same for everybody. I counsel my diabetics and my MS patients and my heart disease patients the same way, right? We all want to optimize every aspect of our lifestyle so that we can age gracefully. So we don't end up, you know, what we see typically in our country is that bookend in the nursing home for a few years, suffering, demented, contracted, uh, uh, and confused, and suffering. And, and that's terrible for the patient. It's terrible for the, for the patient's family who has to witness it. So what we wanna do, this idea of lifestyle medicine and this movement that uh, I'm very hopeful is overcoming our country and our globe is this idea of empowering the patient so that he or she can improve the quality of their life. And again, age gracefully. My hope for everyone, for every one of us is that We live to that ripe ripe old age of 98 or 102. And on that last day, we spend a beautiful day with our family and friends. We share a colorful plant-based meal, lots of love in that last last moment, go to bed and pass peacefully. That's my hope for all of us. We don't have to have that bookend of pain and suffering. We have the knowledge and understanding today to largely um, offer patients that advice to, to support their 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 personal health.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. So Libby wants to know if you take any MS medications today and Marcy says, did you have any detoxing or any leftover side effects from all the years that you were on synthetic medication?
1: Yes, so the first question, am I on any MS medications today? I do not take any medication for anything. Uh, and, and as I said, it'll be 25 years this October 11th. And you know what I'm going to do on October 11th on the 25th anniversary, I'm going to walk 25 miles. So I feel so happy and proud of that. The second question was, do I, I'm sorry, what was the second question?
0: Did you have any detox or side effects coming off all the medications you had been on for so long?
1: I, I didn't. I, but I tapered off of them very carefully, uh, and so I, in large part. Well, I, I can say this, uh, and, and I want to make this point um, that certainly in the beginning, for example, when I when I came off the, the ambient, we'll use that example. It was very difficult for, for weeks and months. I had insomnia, and I had to work through that. So yes, there were there were some challenges there. Uh, neuropathy in my bladder, so I was taking medication. Uh, multiple sclerosis can affect your bladder. Um, I experienced numbness and weakness in my in my legs. And when I came off some of the medications like gabapentin that were that I used to manage the the pain from that neuropathy, yes. I experienced um, those side effects, but you know, it's funny. It's been so many years that I I had to think back. So Margie, thank you for bringing me back and reminding me (laughs) I had forgotten, but yes, there were no, no question. Those first few years were very challenging and also important for me to say this. I never claimed to be cured of MS. I have a lot of respect for this disease. Uh, I manage it daily. Everything that I prescribe to my patients, I practice myself. Uh, I engage in physical activity every day for at least 60 minutes. I eat a plant-based diet 100%. Um, I practice meditation every day or prayer. Uh, I, I don't smoke. I don't drink. Uh, I, I manage um, my time effectively. I don't, you know, I don't work late into the day. Oh, my sleep is very regimented. I go to bed at nine o'clock and I wake up at five o'clock every day. There's eight hours of beautiful sleep. Uh, and I don't play around with that. Now, if I were to decide that, you know, I don't need eight hours. I'm going to go with five. Uh, I, I'm going to maybe skip breakfast or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing, then I'm going to get into trouble. I know that. So I don't mess around. So I'm very strict about, about my lifestyle. I've been, Managing this disease for 25 years, I know it well, but I also respect it, so I don't mess around, Uh, and I don't know, maybe in, in five years something will happen, I don't know, but I can tell you today, in this moment, I feel great, and I'm all about mindfulness, and I'm all about living in the moment, I'm not worrying about tomorrow, right now I'm with my friend Chef AJ, and we're having a nice conversation, and I feel great.
0: Great. Well, thank you. And Dr. Bukhari is watching this and he goes, 25 years, medication-free, exclamation mark. And people are commenting how beautiful you are and which actress you remind them. And do people tell you you look like Sandra Bullock or Kate Jackson? Everybody's thinking you're just so-
1: Oh my goodness. No, but I love that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And what I love and I have to acknowledge- thank you for so much for the super chat donation and the kind comment. We need more human beings like Chef AJ and like Dr. Stancic for sure and like Dr. Buhari, who's watching. So I'd love to talk about your documentary that's available now on Amazon. It's fantastic. I watched it twice. The first time just as an audience member and the second time as somebody I knew I was going to talk to you about this show to, to make up questions. Code Blue is the name of it. When did you make it? When did it come out? And what gave you the idea to, to, to produce a documentary?
1: Right. Well, it was a five year journey. So we started in 2015. The film was released on May 26th, officially 2020. Um, Why did I make a documentary? Because when, when I look at my experience retrospectively, so 10 years of medical education and I didn't learn anything about the most important intervention available to us the most important intervention that changed the course of my life. And I needed to understand why. Why don't medical students learn this in medical school? And I needed to act in some way, in some fashion to shed light on this lapse. So right, that that's the, the dream of the documentarian is to shed light on a cause in hopes that we can inspire the masses to create change. I mean, we need change. When we look at the medical education model AJ, it is based on this idea of pathogenesis. So what we learn in medical school is really the study of disease and illness. We become experts in that realm. We're disease detectives. We learn how to take a really thorough history and physical exam. And then we collect additional clues, right? The imaging studies and the blood work. And ultimately we take all of this evidence and we use it to make a diagnosis. And when we make that diagnosis, We manage that that patient with what? A pharmaceutical agent, a procedure or a surgical intervention. That's what we learn in medical school and all of that. The idea of pathogenesis is incredibly important and should be part of the experience in medical school. But what we miss is the other half of the human health experience. We don't learn anything about the opposite of pathogenesis which is what we call salutogenesis. Salutogenesis is the study of health and well-being, and we don't learn that in medical school. And that would include, what would that mean in medical school? It would mean modules on nutrition, on physical activity, on sleep, on effective counseling, on behavioral change. All of this is completely excluded from the medical school experience, and it must change. It has to be the foundation on which we build all else. All medical students should have this foundation of salutogenesis, and then pathogenesis built on that. And by the way, I keep saying medical school, but I'm talking about all healthcare professionals, nursing school. I'm talking about anyone who's part of the healthcare uh, experience. And and if we have that, if we have physicians that are well skilled and understand the importance of lifestyle and understand the importance of health and well-being, then I think we can make a significant, we can change the world. Chronic diseases, we are drowning in chronic diseases currently. Each year we see those top 10 causes of death to CDC. And if you compare the year before this year, the most recent data, we see that seven of the top 10 killers have increased in the past year. We see obesity rates exploding in our country. You, you know, AJ when I last I told you over the past 15 months I've been writing my first book and last summer I wrote the section on obesity for my book and at the time when I was doing my research the CDC reported that obesity rates in the United States were at that time 39.8% just in the past couple of weeks I've been doing the final edits on the book before it goes to print and now the CDC a year later is reporting obesity rates in the country at 42.4%. In one year, obesity rates climbed by 2.6%. So if you think that the chronic disease epidemic is plateauing or slowing down, you're wrong. It is ever increasing. And when are we going to act to change it? Diabetes is another disease that is exploding in our country. When I was a medical student, rates of diabetes 2%. We're now brushing past 10% and the CDC predicts that by 2050, by the time my son is my age, obesity rates in this country will surpass 30%. AJ, we can't, it's unsustainable. Something we're doing in clinical medicine isn't working despite all of the advances, the medical technology, the bioengineering, one drug approved after another and and we're drowning in this chronic disease epidemic. And we need to redefine our approach to healthcare because what we're doing today isn't working. And so in large part, that's why I made the film because I wanted to shed light on this lapse and bring it to the American public. And by the way, it's not just the American public. This is a global issue of concern. And I think now is a a very important period in our history. And I say that because we have this universal attention to a healthcare topic. And of course, I'm referring to the coronavirus pandemic, which began in January in our country when the first case was diagnosed in Washington state in a gentleman who had returned on a business trip from Wuhan, China. And ever since that first case came in, Our world has been turned upside down. We have gone through a very difficult period. We have lost now, I think the most recent count as much as 170,000 Americans. But importantly, this coronavirus pandemic has intersected in a very important way with the chronic disease epidemic. And we learned that, or we've had inklings or understanding of that with the Chinese data and the Italian data, but just in June, the CDC reported in in a morbidity and mortality report that looking at the surveillance data in the Americans who had coronavirus and what they reported was, I think, striking. If you had a pre-existing chronic disease at the time that you were infected with the virus, you are six times more likely to be hospitalized And 12 times more likely to die. This pandemic has really placed emphasis and has shined a big bright light on how vulnerable we are, how susceptible we are. And it is now, in this moment of pain and suffering, that we must acknowledge that we have to act now. Change must come to our healthcare setting. We must educate and empower our patients uh, because. It's not only the heart disease that leads to the heart attack in 20 or 30 years, but it's the heart disease that leads to the acute death from coronavirus. And, and, I, and I pray that this is the silver lining, that this is our call to action that um, that my film resonates with audiences across the country and, and the globe that we need to come together and, and uh, into a room, bring all the, the stakeholders and, and let's talk about what we need to do to bring change to this healthcare Uh, setting so that we can serve our communities most effectively. And by the way, it is our minority communities that are suffering the most. The data also illustrated that 33% of those affected were Hispanic and 22% were Black. So our most vulnerable populations are suffering. We need to act to support change.
0: Absolutely. Mary wants to know if you still currently experience any MS symptoms and Ellen wanted to know if pregnancy affected your MS in any way.
1: So currently I I am asymptomatic, but I can tell you that there are days where, um, for example, if I travel, like I do a lot of public speaking in the past several months, we haven't been traveling, but when I'm on my regular schedule and and I travel, for example, when I travel to the West Coast, it can be a little bit challenging. Uh, but I know how to work through that. I can tell you, for example, sometimes I have to say no to things that I really wanna do. Uh, here's a, a good example. A few years ago, I was in uh, somewhere on the West Coast. I think it was in Phoenix where the American College of Lifestyle Medicine conference occurred. Um, it was in Phoenix, but it was a it was a city in in, um, in Arizona. And on one particular night, Dr. Esselstyn, who is someone I, I love and admire, he's a mentor to me, uh, was being presented a a lifetime achievement award at a dinner that night and I really wanted to be to be there uh, to be part of that celebration and I ended up not going because I knew that I needed to get that extra sleep. so sometimes there, there are modifications that I need to implement uh, to assure that I get what I need uh, but but I am doing well today and, and I am asymptomatic, but I but I am very, as I said earlier, respectful. And, and, and there are times where I do have to make some changes to make sure that I'm getting what I need to, to get through those more difficult moments. Nice. Um, pregnancy, so pregnancy is interesting. For autoimmune diseases and in multiple sclerosis, being pregnant is actually protective. The problem is, is uh, um, after the pregnancy and so in both i have two children in both my pregnancies in 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 the post um delivery period i did have exacerbations now the exact i had my children before my lifestyle changed but i did experience exacerbations and i was uh, advised by my physicians that there was risk in, in 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 pregnancy but it was important to me so i i did have children uh and so so yes, I think that even today though, most, I, th- I believe that most multiple sclerosis experts uh, will counsel patients to, uh, if they wanna have children that that they do it responsibly and there's a way to do that. Uh, but yes, uh, pregnancy is protective during the period, but you are at greater risk of an exacerbation afterwards.
0: Wow. Susan says, what do you think of medical cannabis for multiple sclerosis, sclerosis? sclerosis. Sure. <laughs>
1: Well, I know there's an indication for it. There is a role for for medical cannabis, specifically for patients who um, struggle with spasticity. Uh, So it does serve a purpose there and it is an indication. I don't personally use cannabis. And I don't personally, I mean, it's, allow me to be clear, I'm not a a multiple sclerosis doctor. I'm not a neurologist or an expert in multiple sclerosis. I just happen to have multiple sclerosis. So uh, that would probably be a question more appropriate for someone who manages MS patients.
0: Right. So let's talk about the documentary. It's, it's definitely available on Amazon. I'm, I've been posting the link throughout the show. Is it available anywhere else other than on Amazon? If people want It's to... actually
1: available on certain, on, on many platforms, Google Play, Apple TV, um, Voodoo. If you go to our website, codebluedoc.com you'll see all the different platforms, uh, that where the film is available. And, 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 you know, the film tells my story. It tells the story of, of some of my patients, uh, it it tells and it and it sort of takes me on a journey to really uh, meet with experts across the country, like Colin Campbell and Caldwell Esselstyn and and uh, Dean Ornish, all, all who have done remarkable and important work over uh, several decades. It, and it's it's so interesting, AJ. You, you know, I never knew about any of these physicians because I wasn't familiar with them. In my in my traditional training, it wasn't until I, I came to know that, uh, for example, Dr. Ornish has been doing work in in heart disease for for 30, 40 years, and and I wasn't familiar with it. Uh, so getting to know uh, these pioneers like Michael Greger, and and they're just wonderful, and and getting to know them, sitting with them, and 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 conducting these interviews. And, and hearing their perspectives was, was wonderful. And, and I really wanted to share the evidence too. We present the literature, the scientific evidence to support the recommendations that we're making. So it's, it's very important for me to convey to the audience, particularly my colleagues, peers, other physicians, that lifestyle medicine is not um, complementary alternative is not it is evidence-based. There is scientific literature that supports every one of our recommendations. Profound scientific literature, uh, uh, indisputable uh, uh, scientific literature, and uh, and and it's it's incredibly powerful and life-changing for those of us who practice it. And so, so for me, obviously, it, it changed my life. But but just being able to empower patients and witnessing their changes, like. For example, Kelly, the young lady who's featured in the film with multiple sclerosis, when she initially came to see me, she came to see me because she was newly diagnosed with MS. But at the time, she was also obese and pre-diabetic and hypertensive. And and, um, I said to her, I understand you're worried about the MS, but what about this other stuff? The good news is that lifestyle changes that we implemented to serve her MS also reversed her prediabetes reversed. Her hypertension. She she lost 80 pounds. She now has uh, an ideal body weight, and she has so much energy, and and, and is so eager to share her experience. She's always p- posting uh, images and uh, on Facebook and on social media, sharing sort of paying it forward, which is wonderful. I think that's one of the other beauties of lifestyle medicine and plant-based lifestyle is that it is infectious in the sense that you feel so good that you want to share it with as many people as possible because you want them to feel just as good so uh it's all it's all it's all good news you
0: know as i loved your film and you had the who's who is a plant-based royalty in there everyone from dr ornish to dr Esselstyn. but i think my favorite part were the doctors that are as of yet not known, the medical students talk about that part because you actually introduced me to them and they're going to be on the show. That was phenomenal. I had never heard of that medical school and what they're doing.
1: Yeah, Well, the University of South Carolina is is an extraordinary institution. This is a medical school, AJ, that is built on the principles of lifestyle medicine. And the architect there is Dr. Jennifer Truk that I think you're going to interview sometime soon. She is an amazing woman who's really just built the ideal setting. She's built the medical school of the future. Uh, This is what I hope every medical school uh, morphs into because what she's done is just um, near a miracle. When I walk around that medical school, I just feel so happy and so proud that this exists. And she's showing us that we, yes, we can train doctors to be happy and healthy themselves. The first thing she says to these kids when they get in day one is you will be your first patient. And I think that's such an important lesson. We need to know how to take care of ourselves. So she talks to them about assuring that they're implementing these lifestyle behaviors into their own lives so that they can be an example for their communities, for their patients, for their families. I think that's a very important lesson. There's a scene in the film where, where it, we're cooking and they're all wearing these chef hats, and it looks like a cooking school, it looks like a culinary school, and it's a medical school. And it, it's just a joyful setting. You see them learning, they're excited about what they're doing. And she's producing doctors that uh, are equipped, have the knowledge and understanding, the skill set to go out into the world and combat the chronic disease epidemic at its root, right? So the, the, they're not just treating the symptoms of diabetes, they're getting down to the root cause uh, the, uh, of the chronic disease. That's the difference. And and so the medical school has now been in existence. I think it'll be, this is its sixth year and they're graduating these young men and women that are going out into the world and creating change wherever they go. The other group of medical students are my my students from Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and one of the students that is featured in the film is uh Saul Batista actually it's now Dr. Saul Batista when we made the film he was a medical student at the time and I met Saul right before he started medical school he came to visit me at my practice like just showed up and he said Dr. S, I'm going to start medical school in August, and I know I'm not going to learn what you do when I'm in medical school. So, can you please support me and mentor me? So that was in August of 2015, and um, of course, it was an honor to 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 have him visit me. We started a lifestyle medicine interest group at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, and we spread lifestyle medicine at that medical school. And today. It's been now uh, six years, uh, and he's a second-year medical resident at the University of South Carolina, where Dr. Trilk is. So he's now a um, second-year medical resident, and he's mentoring interns and medical students. And soon he'll be an attending physician, and he'll be out there uh, in charge. And that's what we need. And that's what's really exciting for me, AJ, is to see my students graduating and becoming leaders in their in their um, part of the world. And, and this is spreading, there's a movement. No doubt there's a movement and it's growing. And we have these enlightened uh, young physicians that are really just passionate about getting this message out and about creating change. So I think the future is bright. Uh, and And many of my peers are learning and they're learning about this, even though we didn't learn it when we were in medical school, when they hear about it. Just today, I I received an email from a physician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who told me I saw code blue five times. I loved it. I don't know anything about lifestyle medicine. I didn't know this, but I'm gonna learn. I'm inspired by the film. I'm gonna attend the next lifestyle medicine conference. I'm gonna read about nutrition. I'm gonna educate myself. Thank you for that inspiration. So when I get email like that, it means everything to me And, and and I know, the movement is growing.
0: Well, it sounds like your protege is somebody I need to meet to have on this show because he sounds amazing.
1: You have to meet Dr. Batista, you will love him. He's an extraordinary young man.
0: Right, so we have a question Oh gosh, the feed moves so quickly. It's from Nan and she says, is there anything different you would recommend to someone who is at the secondary progressive MS state who has not found any benefits from whole food plant-based eating? And she says she eats an SOS-free whole food plant-based diet, she's in a wheelchair.
1: Yeah, so secondary progressive, so there are different uh, stages to multiple sclerosis or different types. So re- there's relapsing remitting, which is typically where patients begin. And and there's primary progressive where uh, relapsing remitting is you have an exacerbation, you get better, you have an exacerbation, so it waxes and wanes. Uh, Primary progressive, you get diagnosed and and you, you have an event and it never gets better. And then secondary progressive, which is what she's describing. So secondary progressive is usually what you evolve into from relapsing remitting. So we know based on Swank's work that this approach, this lifestyle medicine approach is most effective when it's implemented very early on in disease. So when there's significant damage, um, there may be some irreversibility. But with all of that said, even in anybody's setting, it's not just, and by the way, it's not just diet, right? It's all aspects of lifestyle. And, And those are the topics that I cover in my book. There are what I call six spokes to the lifestyle medicine wheel. And and so I address all of those. And, And again, that's diet, it's exercise, it's stress, it's sleep, it's substance abuse issues, and then the importance of social connectedness. So for that person who asked the question, I would want her to assure that she's addressing all aspects of lifestyle. So it might be a good idea for her to see a lifestyle medicine physician and really review her whole case in totality and address every aspect. Uh, of her healthcare uh, in in hopes that it could serve her and allow her to improve some of her quality of life.
0: Great, thank you. I'd like to talk about your book. It comes out in January of 2021, forward is by Dean Ornish. It's called, What's Missing from Medicine? Six Lifestyle Changes to Overcome Chronic Illness. What is missing from medicine?
1: Well, everything we just talked about. So (laughs) when I, you know, it's funny, when I think of my experience uh, over those 10 years of training, of medical education, I almost see it as this big jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces, you know? And each experience I had, every course that I took, every patient that I encountered, every, you know, mentor, educator that I encountered, each each one of those experiences, AJ gave me another piece of that puzzle. And as I moved along my training, I pieced these puzzle pieces together. And the hope, of course, was that at the end, I would have this comprehensive image allowing me to have all the tools I needed to go out into the world and practice as an attending, fully trained, board-certified physician. In retrospect, I realized that when I graduated from all of my training, there were so many missing pieces to that puzzle, and I didn't know it. It wasn't until later that I realized that my training as a physician had been incomplete. So it is for that reason that I named the film, what's, I mean, rather the book, what's missing from medicine, because these are the missing pieces. This is what I had to learn after my training. And it is speaking to the power that lies behind lifestyle. And it speaks to the evidence that supports the recommendation. This is not, this book is not my subjective opinion. I didn't pull this out of the air. Everything that I speak to in the book is supported by evidence in the literature. And I think that's so important. Uh, and I'm so excited about the film, I mean, about the book, because it's, it's a simply, it's simply uh, a conversation between myself and the reader. It's just a very honest account of the way medicine, the way I see it, and it offers, uh, m- from my perspective, what we need to do to change it so that we can allow uh, the majority of us to live this chronic disease life, we can do it. We have the knowledge and understanding today. So it's this is my opportunity to sort of stand on that hilltop and scream and share this in hopes that it will resonate with, with whomever reads it and, and, and inspire them to implement changes in their own lives so that they can reap the benefits that all of us, like you and I, yeah. have already
0: achieved. Absolutely. it's So for people that wanna implement changes, are you accepting new patients in New Jersey? And are you a doctor that can also do telemedicine for people that are watching and inspired?
1: Yes, well, thank you. I I, I am accepting new patients, but um, I think my ne- it's gonna be a little bit of time. I'm a little bit backed up. I think my next available is sometime uh, in the late fall. Uh, and I have been doing telemedicine Now, I don't know, to be frank, how long I'm going to be doing uh, uh, practice. I I think my next chapter is really finding uh, an opportunity to do public health. I really want to take this to the next level and find ways to create change and and be at that table when we bring together, as I said, those stakeholders uh, into one room and to be there, to be part of that discussion so that we can build effective healthcare systems that will serve us moving forward in light of the the world that we live in today. So I'm excited for the future. And I think the most important thing is that this movement is spreading far and wide across our country. And there's more and more physicians that are interested in this. And by the way for those who are interested in a consultation with a lifestyle medicine physician and thank you if you're interested in, in a consultation with me but you don't have to come to me there are lifestyle medicine physicians all over the country it's growing you can visit the american college of lifestyle medicine website put in your your zip code and you, you'll get a listing of lifestyle medicine physicians in your part of the world there's another website i think it's called plant-based docs where you can also find um, docs that are in your part of the world. So the good news is that, uh, we are, we are spreading across the country, this new generation of young medical students, young interns and residents, they get it. And they're, they're so passionate about the work. Uh, so I'm excited.
0: So we have a lot of people like Daryl Woodruff who pre-ordered your book and many people have seen the documentary or are going to see it. Why did you call it code blue? Okay.
1: So the reason I called it code blue. So do you, let me define what a code blue is, right? So a code blue is when your patient is in cardiorespiratory arrest, right? We, it's sounding the alarm. So in medicine, we call that a code blue. And when we call a code blue overhead at the hospital, we run to the, so there's a team that runs to the bedside to resuscitate that patient, right? Well, I think the healthcare system needs to be resuscitated right? So that's why I called it code blue. I think we're in trouble. I think uh, it's it's frightening where we are today. Uh, we, the problem is ever growing and we're continuing on the same path. And so this is my hope that I'm shocking my peers, the healthcare system, like wake up, it's time. We need to come together, understand that yes, we're doing a lot of good things in medicine and let's, we can celebrate our wins, but here's a big gap we are missing an opportunity here. We know how to fix it. We have the knowledge and understanding to fix it. So let's do it. Let's come together. And there's, it's not about blaming anyone or, or living in the past or here. Listen, there's a wonderful quote by Maya Angelou that I, that I use all the time. Do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better right? So we know better today. So let's not lay blame or let's just get together in a really joyful way. And, and let's fix this for the better of our future, for our communities, for our family, for our friends, for for uh, planet Earth.
0: Yeah, beautifully said. So it, it, I'm, I'm sure there were challenges that came up doing the documentary, but do you have any stories on either the most challenging part, the funnest part, the most joyous parts? What What memories do you have of making the film?
1: Well, it was a lot of it was a lot of hard work, Um, and I think the most joyful part was just traveling across the country and and meeting uh, these extraordinary uh, pioneers that I so greatly admire hearing their stories Uh, there. You know, there's so much in the film because you have to we we filmed I don't know how many hours and you have to cut it down. And there's so many wonderful stories that aren't included in the film that, that to me are heartbreaking. For example, there was a young man uh, in Boston, Massachusetts who had reached out to me years ago telling me that he wanted to bring, and he was an eighth grade AJ when he reached out to me, he wanted to bring plant-based options into the Boston school system. And he wanted to write to the Massachusetts legislation about it. And he asked me if I would write a letter supporting him as he proposed this to the legislation. Anyway, he was an eighth grader at the time. Well, this kid wrote this letter. He fought for this. He brought change to Massachusetts. It passed in their legislation. And we filmed his story. We visited with him in Boston. We met with the uh, the senator who supported uh, the legislation. It was a beautiful story. We went to the school and we saw the the implementation of these plant-based options, but we couldn't it, it wasn't included in the film because we just we just couldn't. But there were so many stories that patients who um, we interviewed who changed their lives we just couldn't fit them all in. So there are so many, there, it's almost like another film that we could potentially make. I was gonna say
0: maybe an outtake reel or like just a bonus reel right. that people could I, buy. That would be amazing. Right.
1: I think we need to do that because there's so many beautiful stories that are so touching that that you really wanna want to share with 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 the community.
0: That is amazing. I have to take a moment. Knowledge DHC for the super chat. Thank you for your dedication and any upcoming recipe books. Yes, I have a new book coming out next month, my third book. So thank you so much for asking. Well, I'm excited for your book, and I notice it comes out in January. So maybe come back at that time, and we'll talk just about the book and get a lot of people to buy it that that week. And come on, either maybe even with your protege or he can have his own episode because he. We would love to meet him.
1: Well, I think you should you should definitely dedicate an episode to him because you will not be disappointed. He's amazing, and then I would love us to
0: do one together. That would be great. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad I finally got to talk to you. And thank all of you guys for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Believe it or not, we have another show in one hour. We are going to be live streaming absolutely free our first gentle yoga class with Jen Shipley. So please come back in an hour. Thank you so much, Dr. Stancic. I love your work. I hope everyone will watch this film. And, And now, you know, it's sheltering. It's we can't go to the movies anyway. So this is perfect. Thank you so much, Take care. Bye-bye.